share a story with you that uh, many of you don't know. In fact, it's a story that happened about six years ago. And I imagine even as I share this story, if you don't know me, you might say, who, who is this guy? And he believes that kind of stuff. And maybe some of you that do know me say, might, might, might think, gosh, is that the Drew that I, that I know? That's, that's, a, that's an odd story. I was a high school pastor for a number of years at a church uh, uh, the next county over, and as the high school pastor, we went on uh, global trips uh, all around the world. And about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, I was in Uganda, and I was in a little area called Bukasa, and it is a slum in which uh, a famous witch doctor lives. And people from all over East Africa will pilgrimage to that area looking for power, looking to worship Satan, looking to grow in their influence and their power. And in the midst of all of that, I was walking with a friend of mine who's a missions pastor still at that church. And as we were walking side by side, going door to door, sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, uh, there was these two young men that, that came up and uh, we began talking. It was like this really friendly conversation. One of them actually had a soccer jersey on. And so there was this connection because I grew up playing soccer. And, uh, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. Like I can, you know, it transcends culture. We're talking soccer. We're talking about our favorite teams. We, we knew the, you know, the same players. And as we began talking, my friend, as he began to share why we were there, the moment he said the name Jesus, something shifted. And I don't even know how else to describe it, but it felt like all the oxygen in the world just got sucked out. It felt like everything just went black and white. And all of a sudden, I noticed the hammer in his hand. I hadn't noticed it before. And as my friend is sharing his faith, sharing the gospel, all I can do is picture this young man taking the hammer and hitting my friend on the side of the head. And as real as I am before you today, I, I, I'm picturing this and, and I'm replaying it over and over in my head and I've seen a lot of Jason Bourne films. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, if I do this, if I do that, and I'm just trying to like rehearse what I'm gonna do because it's at the point where I believe it's actually gonna happen. And it was so, so tangible in my mind that I almost couldn't even hear my friend sharing in the conversation that was going on. In the midst of all that, trying to figure out what I'm gonna do, I, I come to this realization that there's no way on earth that I'm gonna be able to do anything. It was as if in my mind was playing out different scenarios and I would get hit or my friend would get hit or we'd both get hit. And I, I reached this, this almost like panic, this fear, I reached the end of myself. And then I turned to my last resort, which would, should have been my first instinct, and I began to pray. And the craziest thing happened, as soon as I began to pray in the name of Jesus that he would protect us, that, that he would surround us with his love and in the name of Jesus that he has co conquered death, that he's conquered evil, in that moment, as soon as I began to pray, all of a sudden it was like the oxygen came back in. It was as if the black and white came back to technicolor. And the conversation just finished and they left, and it was as if nothing really happened. And that's one experience, but then when you hear the fact that as soon as they left and rounded the corner, my friend almost collapsed and shared with me, Drew, I have no idea how to explain it other than the moment I began sharing my faith, the moment I said the name of Jesus, I felt like he was going to strike me with that hammer. And I'm saying, I felt like he was going to hit you and I was praying. 
And he says, well, it was so weird. In the very beginning, I was filled with fear, but I chose to step into it, to share my faith, to just keep pressing in. And he said, he said to me, he says, this is going to be like the end of my life. I'm going to be going out sharing the gospel. But I still felt like he was going to hit me, he was going to hit me, and then something shifted about three or four minutes in. And all of a sudden, there was this shift, and I just felt this peace, this warmth, and I had more confidence. And I said to him, I said, the first few minutes, I was trying to protect you. No wonder you were filled with fear. (laughs) And I said, but then I shifted, I began to pray. I have 10 more stories I can share with you from that trip alone. I got back to the room of which we were staying in, and there was a passage from Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about putting on the armor of God. And I shared with the group, a group of high schoolers and their parents and volunteers, and I shared with them, I said, forgive me. As the high school leader, I, I prepared you culturally. I prepared you missionally. Uh, I, I prepared you for the, the rigors of international travel. But I think I failed you to train you spiritually because as I read Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about putting on the armor of God. And it talks about standing firm because we war not against flesh and blood, but the spirits and the rulers and the principalities and the evil forces of this world. And it says, stand, form, stand firm for when the day of evil comes. And I shared with the group, I said, you know, I've always read that text wrongly putting the word if in that passage. And I wrongly thought that if the day of evil comes, no, it's when the day of evil comes. Stand firm. Put on the armor of God. And I want to step into that in a deeper way right now with you. This is a difficult message. This is a difficult topic. The question that I have before us is, why is there evil in the world? And if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're seeing how in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is two perspectives in life. There is an under-the-sun perspective, and if you don't understand that phrase, you'll never understand this book of the Bible. The phrase under-the-sun, which is used 30 times in just that book, literally means all that you see is all that you get. There's no creator, there's no God, there's no, you know, intelligent design, Under the sun, life is meaningless. It's without purpose. And we're going to explore the answer to that question, why is there evil in the world from an under the sun perspective? We're also going to take a look at an above the sun perspective. That's the second truth. This is a with God perspective that there's so much more to life than what you can see. But before we get to Ecclesiastes, I want us to hear a passage from the New Testament as it's read. This is Romans chapter 12. Give a listen. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. 
Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't you pull that Bible out, and as you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I want you to keep that reading from Romans 12 in the back of your mind. And as we get to Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3, that's, I believe, on page 538, I believe. Is that right? 538 in your pew Bible. I'm going to read for us this short section. And again, this is in response to that question, why is there evil in the world? This is an under-the-sun perspective. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. Now, how many of you, show of hands, have ever looked out on the world? Locally, globally, you've seen it in person, or you've seen it in the headlines, and you said, how on earth? How could that happen? How many of you have ever paraphrased it, something similar to that? Yes, we live in a world that we look around and there's, there's evil. And there's no other way to say it. There's literally tests that have been done where they will hook people up to machines to measure brain waves and the pers- uh, perspiration of their skin, and their heart rate, and they're shown images of violence. And, quote, a normal person would be affected biologically. And there's some people in this world who might, we might refer to as sociopaths, for whatever reason, their heart rate doesn't rise. Their brain waves stay the same. Their skin doesn't perspire. And some people might look at certain types of people and say, oh, that, that's an evil person. But then again, we look on this world and we see very normal people, people like you and me, that get caught up in a mob mentality and actually join in in tremendous atrocities. Whether complicitly or not, they turn their head against violence. And we can actually see that there's sometimes this unexplainable thing that happens among groups of people that causes genocide. That people get wrapped up in things. That they are actually part of systems of oppression. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, under the sun, without God, without any sort of divine guidance in life, it's better if you weren't even born at all. Because the reality is that if you live a life where God doesn't exist in your mind, and as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, then morality, then even the notion of good and evil is simply just a matter of perspective. It's, it's all subjective. You see, we live in a world where we might look at a group of people or an action or a thing and we might say, that's evil. 
And they would say, no, this isn't evil. What you are doing is evil. You see, under the sun, it is completely overwhelming. I only want to spend two minutes on the under the sun perspective because when we begin to try to navigate life, when you try to sit down with somebody whose child was killed, who is part of a group of people that are being racially profiled and oppressed, if you sit down with somebody who by the nature of their job is absolutely being crushed by the evil of the system economically. And if you look at them and you try to explain or give them hope or give them courage or give them any sense of security, from an under the sun perspective, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, good luck. And in fact, it's better if you had never been born at all because there's tremendous evil under the sun, there's tremendous oppression, there's violence. And we've moved into a place, especially in the 20th and now 21st century, where we look out on the world and we've, we've kind of crushed the idea of evil down into just flesh and blood evil. You see, throughout the history of humanity, there was a, a description of evil that was supernatural. But as we've gotten smart, as we've gotten sophisticated, as we've kind of moved along from that in society, we're like, no, 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 there's no such thing as dark, evil forces. I mean, that's just, you know, in the films, that's just stories. It's a psychological issue. It's a, it's a systemic issue or, or it's a problem with the behavior. And the writer of Ephesians, the apostle Paul says, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't struggle against flesh and blood. But he goes on, open those Bibles up. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. And keep those Bibles open because I'm going to be jumping around with you in quite a few places that I want you to see. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to move to an above the sun perspective. And above the sun perspective says that there is a God, that there is meaning in life, that actually you have a personal creator. And at the same time, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time with this above the sun perspective because the question of why is there evil in the world is almost even more difficult when you believe that we have a good and all-powerful God. You see, I have friends who don't believe in God. They deny his existence. And this is one of the primary arguments. And maybe some of you have heard this. They'll say, okay, Drew, if you believe your God is good, and if you believe your God is all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? How many of you have ever heard that question asked? How many of you have ever asked that question? How many of you want to know the answer to that question? All right, yes. All right. So the premise is this. Okay, if God is good... If he's good, and if he's not doing anything about evil, then he must not be all-powerful, my friends say. Or they'll say, okay, well, if he's all-powerful and he has the ability to stop evil, then he must not be good because there's still evil in this world. They'll say to me, it's one or the other. He's either good or he's all-powerful. He can't be both. So Drew, so Bel Air, why is there evil in the world? Well, to get to that, We've got to go through th three things. First, the complexity of evil. Second, the proximity of evil. And third, the strategy of evil. And I want to blow through these quickly. The Bibles, hopefully, are still open. Ephesians chapter 6. The complexity of evil. 
It says that we struggle against, we fight against, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, how many of you can summarize exactly what Paul's talking about? Put your hand up. Exactly. Exactly. Like word for word without any... You see, this is complicated. And some of us want to move towards this simple answer. We might move to the devil made everybody do it. It's the devil. And I have a cough because of the devil. And I slipped up because of the devil. And that person's in office because of the devil. And on and on. And we simplify it and we do this one thing. Some of you giggle because you're like, yes, I believe that. Or I saw somebody post that. You see, we oversimplify sometimes. Or... Is it a system that is so much bigger, so much grander than just one person? Or is it these cosmic forces that we can't see? Or is it actual physical rulers? Well, the Bible says, yes, it's all of that. There is a complexity to evil in this world that is so much grander, so much bigger, so much more nuanced, so much more sophisticated than you could ever imagine. That evil seeps into everything in our life not just personally, but corporately, nationally, and through the cosmos, there is this thing that the Bible talks about from beginning to end, and it is evil. And it's absolutely complex. And I also have friends who say, Drew, I mean, you do realize that we have kind of like evolved beyond this belief that there is cosmic forces, that there's demons, that there's a devil. And my friends will say to me, you know, you look at the Bible and it overly simplifies this idea. And they'll say to me, you know, Drew, we've made advancements in medicine. This whole idea of demonic oppression, it's really just a chemical imbalance. It could be multiple personality. I mean, don't try to use that phrase when science has the answer. Oh, is that true? Open those Bibles back up. You're putting them away, keep them open. Matthew 4, 24. Look at the complexity and how specific the Bible is. In Matthew 4, 24, now hang with me here. We're going to be going through a lot. In Matthew 4, 24, referring to Jesus, this is the outset of his ministry, it says this. So his fame, this is the fame of Jesus, spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. 2,000 years ago, the Bible understood mental illness. 2,000 years ago, the Bible understood psychological disorders. 2,000 years ago, the Bible understood physical pain. And 2,000 years ago, there was a separate category from all of that that is referred to as demoniacs, people demonized. So don't assume the Bible oversimplifies this. You see, some people think it's, it's a moral problem. And it's just a moral problem, and you've got to confess your sins, and then you'll be set free. And that's it. And the Bible says yes, but it's more than that. Some people think it's a psychological problem, that you just need counseling. The Bible says yes, but it's also more than that. Some people think that it's a, a medical problem. You just have to have the right medicine. 
Yes, the Bible says, yes, that's true, but it's also more than that. Some people think it's just spiritual, that there's just demonic oppression. Yes, that's true, but it's all of that. And the Bible says that for some people to be cured, to be healed, they need all of it. They need to confess their sin. They need psychological counseling. They need the right medicine. And they need to be set free from demonic oppression. You see, the Bible says that this is tremendously complicated. Don't simplify. The fact that we live in a world where we look out and we think that we know the answers to why these things happen, it is tremendously profound. That leads to the second point, the proximity of evil. Now, what's so fascinating about Ephesians chapter 6, turn back there, I know you were there a moment ago, in Ephesians chapter 6, this famous text, in my translation, the one that you have in your pew Bibles, the New Revised Standard Version, it says in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, for our struggle. Now, the Greek language, the, the most accurate, the most literal translation of the word there, of the verb, is wrestle. It's literally saying, for we wrestle not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wrestle with evil. You see, evil isn't something that you can spot from a mile away and pull out your sniper rifle. Evil is not something so impersonal that you can engage in clone spiritual warfare or drone spiritual warfare. You see, and evil is so close that actually you can't use a pistol. You can't use a sword. You can't use a knife. Even the image of boxing where you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe is too far of a distance. It literally says we wrestle. We wrestle against evil. Do you have any idea that what evil wants to do is to get you into a stronghold, a sleeper hold, a half Nelson, to get you in a suplex, to get you wrapped up? How many of you feel like you're in a wrestling match right now? Now, some of you who don't raise your hand, the reason why you don't raise your hand is because you're losing? There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Some of you, I'm, I'm, I'm very serious. Some of you, the reason why you haven't raised your hand, if you don't feel like you're in a wrestle with the spiritual forces, is because you're so in a sleeper hold that you've lost consciousness spiritually. Because 1 Timothy says this, that every time you are prideful, the devil uses you. Every time, it says in Ephesians, that you are bitter. I was bitter this morning. Senior pastor of this church, I was bitter this morning about something. The Bible says, Drew, every time you are bitter, the devil can use you for the devil's purposes. So in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, go there real quick, Genesis 6, going all the way to the beginning. Some of us need smelling salts. <laughs> we can't even tap out. But there's hope, hang in here. Genesis 6, 5 and 6. Talk about how personal, talk about the proximity, how close. Now listen how pervasive this is. Verse 5 of Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Do you hear the emphasis there? 
In the beginning of humanity, there's this gorgeous picture in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 of the first humans living with God, walking with God in the cool of the garden. They were whole in their relationship with each other, with themselves, with God, with creation. They disobeyed God. They chose their way rather than God's ways. They listened to the serpent, which we'll get to that in a moment. They listened to the serpent that said, did God really say you shouldn't eat from all the trees in the garden? No, 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 no. And they, and they ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were open. They were ashamed. Evil crept into their hearts. There was the first murder. There was rape. There was incest. There was the beginnings of genocide. And what does it say? It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth and that every inclination, not just some inclinations, every inclination was only evil not just partially evil, only evil, not just sometimes, but continually. And then listen to this. This is heavy. The God that we talk about who loves you, who adores you, who knows your thoughts, who designed you, who made you in God's image, what does it say in verse 6? And the Lord God was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Have you ever imagined God asking that question? Why is there evil? And I cannot wrap my human mind around a divine God, my, my finite mind around an infinite God, but when I read here in Scripture that it grieved God to God's heart, that, that God regretted making humankind because of the evil on the earth, How intense is that? How close is that? In the book of Romans, it says that no one is righteous, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, that every single one of us actually can't walk in here off the hook. And it's so easy for us to say, oh, no, 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 it's those people, it's that actions, it's that political party, it's that people group, it's that thing. And we forget that the, the line between good and evil is drawn right down the center of each of our hearts. Every single one of us, we, we, we can do good, we can do evil. Pride, bitterness, it says the devil can use you. What did Jesus say to Peter when he, he seemingly gave good advice? He said, get behind me, Satan. And I want to move to the strategy of evil. Open those Bibles again to Mark 5. And I'm going to read for us 20 verses, and I know this might feel long, but I want to read every verse, and I want you to see it. I want you to come back to it later. In Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, this is the longest description of spiritual warfare in the New Testament, 20 verses. And I want us to catch in all the complexities and the, the proximity and the pervasiveness of evil in this world that is so profound. Take a look at this. Verse 1 of Mark 5, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is Jesus and his disciples. And when he, this is Jesus, had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. 
Let's pause there. I'm going to keep reading a moment. This is a man tremendously afflicted. who on one hand has tremendous strength, has the ability to break chains. I have a close friend whose father grew up as a Christian, then gave his life to Satan in the 70s because he was obsessed, intoxicated with the power. And what Satan does in this idea of the strategy of evil which, by the way, Satan, Hasatan is the Hebrew word. It literally means the accuser. We read in scriptures, it goes all the way back that, that actually Satan is described in scripture as at one point being the most beautiful of all the angels in heaven, who was so filled with pride, actually wanted to be like God and wanted to be greater than God, was so full of himself. And as a result, was cast down out of heaven, took a third of the angels with him, which we refer to as fallen angels. And the way the enemy of God works, the way the enemy of God works is so subtle, is so cunning, is so sophisticated. Get out of your mind that the devil shows up to you and says, okay, I'm going to make you a deal. If you want to make partner in this law firm, you've got to crush people, you've got to worship me, you've got to be willing to do all these things that will cause other people harm and, and maybe perpetuate, you know, systems of violence around the world, but you'll make partner. What you going to choose? No, 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 no. That's not how the devil works. And the New Testament says that the enemy of God masquerades as an angel of light and doesn't convince us that the dark things or the, you know, the evil things are, are really good. No, God's enemy convinces us that the shadow things are the real deal. And what the enemy does is gets behind us ever so slightly and pushes us forward in seemingly good ways, but for our gain. And we'll say stuff like this. You know, you deserve that part. You deserve it. Look at how good you are. These people don't know how good you are. What you, you deserve that part. You should do it. And you do it. But in doing so, maybe you compromise your integrity. You should make partners someday because you're the real deal. You're qualified, you deserve it. And as time goes by and you kind of turn a blind eye to things that you should focus on, that maybe you overlook impropriety, you, you may make a deal and you kind of know the ins and the outs really weren't good and over time it's, it's almost like that, that metaphor of a frog in boiling water, time just goes by. And you know that this man, who is now at this point, has been intoxicated with power, but is completely enslaved. And every single one of us, when we allow something other than Jesus to be our master, we are enslaved by it. I am a recovering people pleaser. This is like group therapy. Every week I say this, by the way. It's like ramp it up. What's going on? And every time I try to please somebody, I'm making that my master. And... And God's enemy so subtly 
whispers in my ear and says, Drew, you can pull it off. You can make everybody like you. You're mature enough. You're flexible enough. You can do it. No one will know. If you say something different to them that you said to them, no one will know. You can do it. And it's so subtle. And it's so enslaving. And it goes on. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. In the Matthew text, it says, Jesus, have you come to destroy us before the time? And the time isn't like Kronos, time on a watch. Like, I thought you were going to come here after dinner and you came up at noon. What's going on? No, no. It says, have you come, have you really come to destroy us before the kairos, the appointed time, which we'll get to in a moment. Hold that off the side of your mind for a moment. It says this, I drew you by God, do not torment me, for he, this is Jesus, has said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, the word legion is a military term. It represents a lot of people in an army. When Julius Caesar was in power, a legion was 3,500 fighting men. By the time the Roman Empire collapsed, a legion had grown to 8,000 fighting men. What we have here is a person that is so tormented by fallen angels, by demons, by evil spirits, that they, plural, refer to themselves as a legion. Thousands of evil spirits are dwelling in this man. Talk about evil. Talk about power. Talk about affliction. Talk about enslavement. And what does Jesus do? Come out. out. He doesn't have to roll up his sleeves. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't spend seven hours laboring. He says, come out. You see, there are exorcisms in other faiths, and always they appeal to a higher power because they realize that they don't have power. In that moment, when I was next to my friend, I'm thinking, how can I save? How can I do this? I reached the end of myself, and I began to pray in the name of Jesus. And that's where the power came, because Jesus is so powerful that all he has to say is, come out. That's it. Come out. And what happened? And this is where the strategy of God, I can't wrap my mind around. Because he sends those spirits, a legion of them, into pigs. And if we think that somehow we can pray a magic prayer, we think that it's going to happen one way, then we're trying to play God because actually when you step into, we'll get to in a moment, of how we overcome evil with good, which is how we started in the Romans 12 reading. If we think that we're going to know the playbook and how it's going to happen, then we're, 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 we're completely overqualified and underqualified. We can't play it out. And it's impossible to wrap our minds around why Jesus would do this. But here's two things that some scholars believe is happening. First is this. It says, look, now they're on the hillside, a great herd of swine. This is verse 11. 
of pigs that were feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, some scholars say that this is significant in the sense that those 2,000 pigs were a fortune for those that owned the pigs. And Jesus is making one point again and again, he does this all the time, that just one life, just one life is worth more than all this wealth, that I will choose this one life to save this life, to rescue this life, to set free this life over all this wealth. World, will you listen? Will you see what the principle is here? But the second is this. They were in a town in the country of the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes were Romans. They were Gentiles. How did the Jewish people refer to the Gentiles in the first century? As unclean swine, as unclean pigs. So they think God's going to show up. They think the Messiah is going to show up and drive out the evil Gentiles to drive out those people. At that time, the Jewish people thought, we are good. They are evil. Now, we've got to be very careful here, church, because it's so easy. Again, I'm going to repeat this. I already said it. It's so easy for us to think that just because we believe in Christ that we're good and everybody else is evil. It's so mistakenly wrong to think that all the evil is out there and we're perfectly clean. And it's absolutely wrong to say, God, would you, would you give me power to drive them out, that political party out, that movement out, that people group out. We are good. They're evil. That's what those people in the first century were doing. And they thought a Messiah was going to come and drive out the Romans. And what did Jesus do to just one Roman? He healed them. He set them free. All he said was, come out. Goes on. Verse 14, the swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion and they were afraid those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported, then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. You're taking away our wealth, Jesus. You're a loose cannon. You're not driving out the Gentiles. Please leave. As he was getting to the boat, the man who had, this is so beautiful, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. You see, in John 10.10, Jesus says that there is a thief referring to God's enemy and he has come to kill and destroy, to steal and destroy and Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. You see, if I was to get up in front of you and say, here is the three-point principled strategy of how the evil one works, 
that I would be used by the evil one to fulfill his strategy. If I was to get up in front of you and say, this is exactly how it works, so you can control it, so you can master it, Satan would be in the background saying, well done, Drew, good and faithful servants. You see, if we knew the strategy of the evil one, then the last thing we would do is get to the place where we would say, God, help. If we knew the strategy of the evil one, then we would, then we would use our own energy, our own strength, our own skill. We have no idea. We have no idea, but God does. And Jesus does. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I want to show you another verse. We didn't share this in the 8.30 service. We've got a little bit more time here. Go to Revelation chapter 19. There's this picture, of course, that we have of Jesus, meek and mild, washing the feet of his disciples. Remember I was mentioning how those demons were saying, Jesus, it's not yet the time. What does it say in Revelation 19? This is a picture of what that time will look like. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is what is to come. John writes, and I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. By the way, this is Jesus on the horse. This is when Jesus returns. This is when Jesus completely defeats evil and death. What does it say? And then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes, he comes in power to destroy all of evil. But there's a problem. The Bible says you're evil. The Bible says I'm evil. Every inclination of every thought is evil continually. How does Jesus destroy evil without destroying you, without destroying me? Look at the life of Jesus. Everything he did was for the sake of the other. Even when Satan came in the wilderness and tempted him three times, it was always to make a name for himself. Jump off that, this precipice and they'll say, you are the Messiah. He lived this life always for others. And as he's headed towards the cross, which, by the way, a lot of people were crucified. And some people were crucified in the first century singing. So how could Jesus, the very Son of God, fully God and fully mankind, why was he on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why is it that, that Jesus, the strongest human being that ever lived, why the night before he went to the cross in the garden, why did he pray, God, take this cup away from me? Why was he sweating blood? The answer is that he went to the cross and he didn't just experience a physical death. That on the cross, Jesus literally took evil upon himself. He took more than a legion upon himself. He got a glimpse of what it was like to enter into hell. And he wasn't dragged to the cross as a victim. He went by choice. He says, I have come to do the will of the Father. He says, God, take this cup, but if it's your will, let your will be done. How could Jesus destroy evil without destroying us? He allowed himself to be seemingly destroyed by evil. The very God of the universe who says, why on earth is there evil in this world? He answers that question by taking the hit for us, by wrestling with evil for us, by absorbing all the pain and all the horrors. It says in Isaiah that he is a man acquainted with sorrows. He carries our iniquities. And therefore, as it says in the book of Jeremiah, that when you enter through the fire, when you, not if, when you enter through the fire, your God will be with you. You've experienced oppression? Jesus says, I'm right there with you. You've experienced bigotry? Jesus says, I'm right there with you. You've experienced painful lives? I'm right there with you. I've experienced it. And the great and glorious thing is that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And yes, he went to a tomb. And yes, he was on the cross naked, racked with pain spiritually and physically in the fullness of that. But he burst forth from the tomb. He defeated death. And it says one day he's going to completely defeat evil. And therefore, and as a moment as we respond in worship, because of all that, because of all the complexities, the proximity, the strategy of which Jesus says, I'm going to be that power, he says this. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God. Wear what has been given to you through Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to go find it. Put on the armor of God in Christ so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle, our wrestling is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand when that evil day comes and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace with all of these. Take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer, and in all supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication 
for all the saints. Jesus says this, the evil that's in you, come out. The pride in you, come out. The bitterness in you, come out. The people pleasing, come out. Jesus says, I have the power to redeem you, to rescue, to set you free, and I'm going to use you to stand firm, to be part of my army that in the name of Jesus presses in, in the name of Jesus standing firm on what Jesus has already done, will do, we say in the name of Jesus, the gates of hell cannot prevail. So cleanse me. Cleanse my relationships, my workplace, my neighborhoods, this world. Use me to do the next good thing, to serve, to love, to spread hope, to spread peace, to worship in the midst of an evil world. Let's stand as we respond in worship.